Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. So uh, today we are speaking to Lance J. Brown, uh, who in addition to being actually a distinguished architect, is uh, and has been a distinguished professor of architecture. Um, but Lance, I've been very uh, impressed to, uh, to see the, the full range of your activities, and we're going to talk a lot about uh, things I know you're passionate about, like public realm, we're going to talk about resilience, we're going to talk about your role in Habitat 3, which was very formative, and I guess I'm going to tap your thinking, as I've done everybody, about um, cities now and cities post-COVID, is it? What, what, what's, what, what do you think about the whole trajectory? Uh, of of cities, but um, so we've a lot to dig into. And thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I, th- I thought I'd start with uh, uh, what I like about the work that you've been doing. Uh, you are an architect and an urban designer, and I think you you know architects sometimes. I speak as a historian. You understand, as not as an architect, so I should be very careful. But uh, architects sometimes uh, do great buildings, but don't necessarily think about the places around them. I think you've, your work is about thinking of both dimensions of, of the, the building and its relationship to its community and, and its place. So I thought um, I'd start by asking you uh, about your, what, what's been driving you? What's, what, the, what are the things that really interest you and drive you as a, an architect and as an urban designer? What kind of issues or, or, or principles really drive you? Well, you know, one, the, the, your, your introduction um, is, is uh, interesting to me in terms of your perception, because when I was a student of architecture and I was considering going on to graduate study, um, I didn't select to do a master's or a higher degree in architecture. I just I selected to do a degree in urban design. And that's very much because as I went through the process of education, it seemed to me that while I hoped I would be the author of many individual buildings, I didn't think there was a likelihood that my individual buildings would be in a Palladian landscape. I didn't think I was going to be doing a large uh, exurban palaces, and I wasn't terribly interested in even suburban homes. I was interested in the texture of the city and the nature of urbanity and urban life. Uh, And I didn't feel that in the school of architecture I attended, which was excellent, nor in the one that I taught at, which was equally excellent, enough emphasis was given to the context in which everyone would eventually be working. And I have to say, I think over the decades, this has come to pass. I'll give you as a statistic, I think in, uh, in, uh, um, in the 1950s and 60s, there was maybe one or two programs in city or urban design, Universal Pennsylvania and American Harvard University. Uh, it's gone from that to being, I think, 60 different degree programs available in urban design around the country in the United States, and I'm sure further around the world. And the number of institutions, organizations in America, what we have, uh, the Forum for Urban Design, the the, uh, um, uh, uh, Urban Land Institute, so on, so many organizations from zero to 60, so many organizations have been created in the last 40 or 50 years that deal with the urban environment without 
discounting architecture, expanding the role of architecture. So when you ask my passion, I'm a, a passionate urbanist, you know, I'm, I'm everything from an urban designer. I like to I'd like to consider that I'm a flaneur if I could. I mean, if I can get enough time off and, uh, uh, and do that. And then there are the writings of people who influenced me going back to Camilo Cite, who early on predicted the, uh, the, the the detriment of the car on on urban place. Uh, he's written very beautifully about it. And then, of course, in the early days, and at least in this country, at the start of the urban design program, people like Kevin Lynch and Don Appleyard, people who were the early writers, and then going further to people who we hopefully all know about, but not enough. This is to your question. People like uh, Jaime Lerner, for instance, uh, who should be famous uh, for the work he did in Curitiba in, in Brazil. And I find even amongst educated, very, very current architects, sometimes the urbanism of Jaime Lerner, which we can discuss if we have time, isn't known or isn't well known. So, yeah, I'm a big booster for the urban environment, even as I talk to you from outside the city. Well, it's interesting. Part of the reason for doing this podcast series um, is a mutual obsession with with cities of everybody I'm talking to. And, and what's been fascinating is talking to people who are transport specialists or people who are cultural experts or people who are civic actors uh, about their passions for the cities. And um, I suppose what's prompted it is a concern about the very future of the urban that we're uh, that we might be going through at the moment, and I, I guess there is a kind of yin and yang in the history of cities, anyway. Where, as uh, you know, you and I have lived through some various phases of of growth and decline, and then further growth of cities. Uh, um, and in fact, in Australia, where I'm speaking from, if you were to go to Melbourne in the 1980s, the sit the centre of Melbourne would be relatively empty, certainly quiet at, in the evenings and at weekends, and uh, nobody lived there. Uh, and that that transformation, that urbanize, that reurbanization that we saw, we saw in many cities across the world. Um, there's some question mark people feel about uh, the urban now in the era of pandemic. Do you think that's overplayed? What are your own feelings about that, the, the urban discussion and this moment? Well, um, again, background, um, somewhere around 1984 or so, I saw some uh, uh, pictures um, memorializing the 40-year anniversary of post-war Europe. And so on top, on the front of magazines, there were pictures of absolutely war-torn Frankfurt or Dresden, and then pictures 40 years later rebuilt, glitzy, illuminated with LEDs, vibrant with life, basically saying, look, these cities were, were demolished. These, they were flattened, and now they're back. I must say, at the same time, there were pictures in the States of the South Bronx and the terrible, tragic bombing of a neighborhood, a black neighborhood in Philadelphia, and they looked kind of similar. And at that time I said, well, you know, we've got to learn lessons from those who were, who were there, the, who, built, who rebuilt Europe. Let's talk to them, find out what the issues were, find out what their hopes, their techniques, and so on, and began that. And I began a course of study for the college a seminar called Urban Reconstruction, which I've run for almost 40 or 50 years. So. Uh, I've watched cities in that regard go up and down from floods, from fires, from seismic, from war, from politics, from economy, rust belts and everything. And boy, the city is an intractable uh, element. It, 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 you know, you can salt it like the Romans did, but they are, sometimes they go to sleep for 
a thousand years. <laughs> and then somehow they get discovered and then they become a terrorist attraction. And then all of a sudden they're back and they're a city. So I am a little bit convinced that the city itself survives, but does it survive as the city we want? Or does it become the apocalyptic city of science fiction? Um, which is, you know, if you look at the, uh, political leadership of the day and the fear tactics being used for the rise of crime and safety and so on, all based on a little bit of the pandemic, you know, uh, um, symptoms where there is a little bit of an issue going on in terms of vacancy and occupancy and uh, invasion and yeah, it's a problem, but the city has always had problems. So to me, these are always things that are opportunities to work on. Yeah, it's funny. I, I veer radically between uh, you know baseless optimism and over-informed you know skepticism and concern you know about the future of the city. So I'm I'm all over the place at the moment. I confess, but I'm I want this. The trouble is, you see, philosophers have this great distinction. I as a, I'm a sort of historian. You know, I'm very interested. Philosophers have a, have a distinction between what is and what ought to be, and so, and they advise us never to confuse. The two, you know, and I, I'm confused because I know what I want, which is I want, in some senses, the return of much of the city that we had before. And then I even I said to myself, but not all of the, all of the city that we had before, because we were seeing some problems of property overheating. We were seeing some problems of social justice. And, you know, we, so I, it's kind of I want the city back, but not necessarily that city. Um you know, the work of Kevin Lynch, it's wonderful, especially in a book, What Time Is This Place, uh, which has a, um, an, an opening uh, dedication line, which is basically says everything is changed. Um, what we look for that would be stasis is probably unlikely. Um, by the way, optimism, pessimism, as a you know decades-long professor, I always found it was impossible to be a pessimist. I mean, how could I go into a university setting and sit with a group of you know emerging talent and depress them with my pessimistic views? So that was a good thing for me. You know, I got lucky. You know, I got lucky to hang out with people. That's a very good point. Who you know, I just that was my. If I found myself going and being a, 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 myself pessimistic and depressed, I think I would have had to re remove myself from the field. Very, very good. So um, the students are very useful in you in maintaining your you know, trajectory you mean, of optimism. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you've got to do it. But it doesn't mean, as I said, with that course, I mean, the urban reconstruction course, it, I mean, I tell you, it had it had it was filled with disaster porn. I mean, you know, it, 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 we're looking at some of the worst conditions, both socially, politically, economically, physically, that you could imagine that then had to be addressed by people who were hopefully being given enough of a a broad humanistic interconnectedness sense of what the complex city is about, that they would actually be able to deal with it, not unlike you would hope for a good doctor, even though he might be a specialist. My goodness, if you go into a doctor's office and he, and you go in for a problem and he sees another problem, hopefully he doesn't just ignore it and wait for you to go to a different specialist. So you have to be aware of the whole body. And, and you know, as I say that, we live in this curious time where we're becoming more and more aware of all of the components that um, we need to attend to, the multiplicity of components, some of them more dramatically than others, but they all end up being in this way, part of the palette 
uh, to address and pull from to use on the canvas that will be that future city. And, and if you like, philosophically, I, I look more like to the Bergsonian as the being and the becoming. I'm into the becoming side, which, and this is a really tough one for all of us, uh, we're always in the position of trying to predict the unknown. Yeah. And we're predicting yeah. the unknown at a time when things are accelerated and dynamic at a rate never before seen. That's not an exaggeration. That's just the way it is. Population growth. I, I find it interesting to point out so that I keep my own perspective in check. When I was born, wasn't that long ago, but you know, when I was born, uh, sort of. I was, I was born in the 14th century, by the way, so you're okay. <laughs> it's like my parents would say, when I was born, a Coca Cola only cost a nickel. But uh, when I was born, the population of the world was below 2.5 billion. The population of the world today is just below 8 billion. It's more than tripled. And at the same time, people living on the globe, and this is arguable, the UN says 55%, but the European Commission says 85% we're urbanized, meaning from when I was born in the United States, 20% of the country was urban, 80 was rural, and now 80 is urban and 20 is rural, and it's tripled in size. So there's really not much of a question as to whether or not we're going to be an urban. That's, that's a very good point. I mean, I mean, that's a, that's a good the question is, how will it be? Not is how we do it. I want to come back to, I want to talk to you about uh, your work in resilience planning, which I think is really very important in this context. I also want to talk to you about your role in putting together and helping to put together Habitat 3, because that's a very important part of uh, I'm from a housing background, so I'm very interested in that. It's interesting the many people in the, globally, because we'll be people internationally will be listening to this podcast, will will not know how urban Australia is, because you know the Australian perception of Australia, rather like American history in the 19th century, is all rural, is that Australia is a vast continent with very great uh, deserts and, and empty spaces in it, and 90% of the Australian people live in something you would regard as a town or a city. And actually, 70% of them, more or less, live in the five or six capital cities that we have. So it's a very urban society. So I think your point is well made, which is that, you know, we don't discount the urban in the post-COVID future. It's how we do the urban in the post-COVID future. And, I, and I'm very interested myself, and I know you are, between there's a yin and yang between the building up of the central city and then the suburbs. And then sometimes the suburbs get favoured and other times it's the city centre and then sometimes it's in a balance. Where do you think we're going to be in that sort of structural discussion? You know, this whole thing about home working, hybrid lives. How do you feel about this? Do you think we're going to go for a kind of... I feel good about it. We, yeah, it's, too, it's too early to say. You become a billionaire on this question, you know. I, I, you know I, going back to what I said um, is, you know... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. How do I feel about it? Um, I feel as though I, I feel as though there are monumental silver linings that have emerged from one of the most devastating two years I've experienced. Um, and, and I'll preface that by saying I've lost close friends and I am now experiencing um, the post vaccination illness of friends and family, which bring more worry 
I'm sure that everyone who, by the time everyone listens to this, I hope that there's something that results in another step towards safety, um, whether it's booster vaccines or better human behavior, I don't know what, but you know, I remain concerned. On the other hand, uh, much of what I do, as we are doing now, has become hybridized. I do things face-to-face, uh, -face, and I do things using the miracle, the unbelievable miracle of modern technology that allowed me during the last years to visit my grandson, read to him three nights a week. He lived you know, on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. I feared that he would grow older without me enjoying that maturation, and I'm not alone, you know, that, you know, grandparents must be crazy all over the world. Um, so we have the, we, we have the, how unbelievably simultaneous that the explosion of technology in the last 50 years happened to surface at a time when unbeknownst to us, it would be a fail safe mechanism for staying in touch socially, politically, economically, in so many ways. And we're going to benefit from that. It's kind of like what happens in wartime. Technology gets boosted by wartime. And then in the post-war era, you benefit from what was developed in a time you wished had never happened. Well, you know, we're in a little bit of that uh, circumstance. So I, uh, I'm constantly, I, I would be surprised if you don't do the same thing. I'm constantly talking to those people I know who will call captains of industry, those people who run businesses, especially the bigger businesses, to find out how are you going to do it? You know, the head of Morgan Stanley in New York says, hey, you're all going out to dinner again. Why don't you come back to work? Yeah. Um, I talk to the heads of, you know, architectural offices, which never get to be as big as banks. Um, but, you know, you could pay a place with two to 300 people. How are you going to do it? Well, we're redesigning the office. We're going to require, sorry, they're working on it. They're working on it at the same time. And this, I think, published today uh, in, in the papers in, in the States, the economy has not tanked. It's not tanked. It's not tanked. I, I thought it would tank. I thought everything would be out of business. My friends would be. It's not. On the other hand, what's happened, which we all know, is the inequity is growing yeah. leaps and bounds. And when we talk about that aspect of life relative to the structure of the city, and here I think, you know, the, the jury is out, but, you know, the UN says, well, when we get to be 9 billion, 2 billion will be in informal settlements. And I take informal settlements with a grain of salt. Some of them have attributes that we try to learn from. You know, they're not, these are not to be totally done. Um, but there are others who say, no, 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 it's going to be 4 billion out of 10 billion. You know, that, that uh, those who are concerned about the informal, and that is not always overlaid in that interconnected way with the other issues of the big issue of climate change and the subsequent issues of sea level rise and heat and so on. I think there's a, I think there's a serious scramble going on, not a mad scramble, a serious scramble on the part of those who can to try to figure out how to stay ahead of the game. I was reading something the other day that seemed perfectly intelligent that said, we're not going to stay ahead of this game. We're going to suffer consequence of this. We're not going to get ahead of it. It's the, the gap between what you need to do and what can be done is too wide to completely bridge it. But on the other hand, nobody's saying, you know, you don't give up, you, you do what you can. So, uh, uh, so, so I, mean, I, I look, I've, I agree. I mean, I, I was going to say something like from my own experience of 
Australia, uh, where I've been 10 years, but I've, I was in London for 25 and I was pretty active in London planning for a, a long time, um, is that I arrived in London in 84 and it had, it, it, it had reached almost its lowest point in its population for a century. It, it, uh, had, start, it had started losing population in the 30s and the 40s. The war accelerated it, actually, because the very interesting concern that the Luftwaffe had exposed the problems of density. Um, so that the, the, the planning arm of the Luftwaffe was very helpful in, in, uh, in reshaping London. So it was actually a, a response, a kind of resilience response, was to disperse people to new towns at the edge of, of London. So when I arrived in the in inner London... Semantic, if, might I interject? Semantic uh, d d debate? I would say it might have been a sustainable but not a resilient response. No, I, indeed. Very good point. Because <clears throat> actually, when he went to inner London in that period, it was dangerous. It was, you know, full of sort of inequalities. It was actually not a good place to be. So that they, I completely agree with you. They'd uh, evacuated the city, and there were consequences to that that were not at all positive. So that the repopulating of the inner city over the last thirty years has been the the, the, the amazing trend. And London is a far better city than it was back in the back in the eighties, as many cities were. So I sort of, I'm a bit nostalgic for that new city. You know, I sort of want to hold on. To that very vital, very vibrant one. The good news, I think, is that, uh, and you, you kind of alluded to this, the amazing capacity of, of you know, cities, real estate as well, actually, to kind of replenish itself, to change its purpose, but to actually find new ways of flourishing. So, you know, I, I think we're already seeing, um, you know, offices get redesigned to, to, you know, streetscapes will be redesigned to attract people into cities. You know, the best city governments will be working in a public-private collaboration way to make sure that we animate the city again, that we get people safely in public transport in and out of cities. I think there's a lot of human ingenuity ahead, but we probably will see, you know, rents be lower than they've they've been for some time. Uh, office rents go down in some places. They haven't collapsed in in New York, I absolutely. They they seem to be doing um, reasonably well. But I mean, the the upside, even if they drop, would be that new young people might come in to occupy offices that they couldn't afford before. That kind of thing, I think. Or, or they might come in to occupy space that was converted yeah. from office to residential, which you know yeah. took place uh, has been taking place in New York ever since the 1960s when the large office plates of 40,000 were needed in the old Woolworth building, a famous building, most one of the most famous buildings in New York becomes residential because the floor plate's too small. And so you you, you can't really economically populate it. Uh, now, uh, of course, with the redistribution population inside uh, commercial spaces, maybe that reduced amount of office space that everyone thought they would need will now be you know uh, countered with the increased distance between the workers who were being crammed in like mice anyway maybe you know you, you don't know we're, we're going through a period of adjustment um that will see conversions adaptive reuse uh retrofits the energy retrofits in buildings alone was going to cause a great great you know focus on existing stock all of this having to do with you know uh, uh energy conservation uh, maybe we'll thicken up the walls of older buildings and turn them into passive house architecture they couldn't have been reasonably otherwise if you didn't care about how much you were paying to i i completely agree with this i, I think the ingenuity side of this we forget sometimes you know the uh we're all we're all in a state of shock at the moment, but the engine, the human ingenuity comes into play, and the uh, 
the reinvention of places and spaces. We've been through this kind of thing before. I was going to ask you specifically, by the way, yeah. some of the transitions that you've been through and some of the responses that you've been involved in. So, for example, you've lived through, on the one hand, I think, in New York. Well, I mean, I went to New York in 1980 for the first time, and I was quite shocked by the state of New York in 1980 because it's been going through about 15, 20 years of de decline, financial crisis, people leaving the city and all that kind of stuff. I returned in the end of the, uh, the beginning of the noughties and it's like a transformed place. Our artists came in where businesses left. You know, mm. there was a kind of reinvention in certain parts of the city. You've lived through that. And then 9-11 then comes along and you've been in, you were involved in, in a number of different ways, um, involved in commissions and in thinking through this on policy in policy terms and the low development the lower manhattan development corporation can you speak to your 9-11 experience because nobody else i talked to has had this experience like i i can but i i will also say to your first point of 60 70 80s 90 aughts whatever you know I, i've never been shy in recognizing the fact that i have been unbelievably fortunate in living in a city that from thy birth to now has improved inordinately. It has gotten so much better. And I say that because I know people who live in Pittsburgh. You know, I know people who live in cities that went from a million to 300,000, not from 8 million to 9 million and back to eight and a half million, you know, the, the cushion. So one, I'm, I'm very well aware of the fact that certain, not all, but certain big cities have, uh, you know, had their metal tested and, and done very, very well. Um, in terms of my response, and it, it goes along with uh, the, the anecdotal sense of my second degree and where I went after that, 9-11, was an interesting turning point because uh, it, it, that was the time that I recognized that we lived in a world at risk. And it was a, no no surprise. Oh, that's of course you live in a world. I mean that risk that kind of that magnitude of risk had never touched. I mean I don't we yeah we had the fire in San Francisco we had the fire in Chicago we had terrible things happen but they didn't happen to me uh, I was I didn't witness them close up nor did nor was I involved in the rebuilding of those places which is by the way um, if, if, if for those who might listen if you he, read Kevin Lynch what time in this place it was wonderful to read about a Japanese delegation that went from Hiroshima to London to find out how London rebuilt after the fire of 1666. They didn't care 400 years went by. They wanted to know how did you do it? What were the major changes? Very interesting, you know, long term. This is the city, city, hundred years. But um, uh, at, the, at the heels of 9-11, what I realized was that my, my colleagues, my peers, my profession, was not either ready nor involved to a great extent in the, the response. And I actually put together a task force of architects, engineers, landscape architects, and said, it's time for us, so this is now 20 years ago, to start to think about how we deal with disaster risk reduction, disaster response, and um, created the task force, which some years later became um, a committee of the New York AA called the Design for Risk and Reconstruction Committee. And we've been running 
programs with people from all over the world on what to do about risk from the point of a, what do you how do you deal with insurance uh you know that that level which is not usually the designer's uh, first thought but very much design how does design uh intersect with matters of risk and rebuilding how do you prepare how do you alert how do you engage how do you educate and i think this has grown for those of us who work with the un you probably they have disaster risk reduction they have all component because the world now understands that we're a world at risk um so 9 11 sent me off in that direction by the time katrina came about by the time the tsunami in bande ache came around from and now in in the advent of the floods and the fires happening of course the people that have come through one the urban reconstruction course and two engaged the design for reconstruction risk and reconstruction committee um has turned into a cohort of people who are out they're working they're working on it and and it so it didn't take me away from the will to build and construct but it did expand the the uh the, the the portfolio of what people in the design world should be about. Now you had mentioned earlier involvement with Habitat Three, and I was not immodest. I don't know. Somehow or other, I got an invitation to join a a group of two hundred world experts divided into twenty committees that would meet and prepare the groundwork for agenda uh, for their new urban agenda and the sustainable development goals. Um, and I found myself working with a group of 20 people. We met in, in Bangkok, we met in Paris, we met in New York. It was a, a privilege to do. Um, no two people from the same profession, no two people from the same country, everybody representing a different culture. And it was the most diverse group of 20 people I've ever been with to discuss in our case, uh, the committee I was with very much, issues of urbanization. And I found myself um, suggesting somewhere along the line, or the, uh, I think I did add the language that we needed, we needed a, new, a new paradigm, uh, that it had to include um, design as a critical component. And I was in rooms with people, a lawyer from Berlin said, no, 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 we don't need that. I said, "What do you mean we don't? You, you don't need what uh, what I'm suggesting? We need it? No, no, no. It has it has no currency. It, it, there's no purpose for it." I said, I, "I don't know. Maybe maybe you don't fully understand the definition of design. Probably as I do not understand fully the definition of the law. Um, but I think that you can't discount this because without design, all of the things you represent do not get put together well." It, it is a it's a synthesizing problem solving discipline it's not fashion it's not how you're dressing tomorrow it's at the fundament of how the world comes to be it's ideation and it was amazing to me that in rooms with people of that level of sophistication that that had to be explained and we went back through the texts of the united nations and if you look at the United Nations from its founding, as, as, as you're probably as aware of as I, two words were missing from all of the documents, anything urban and anything with design, that they didn't exist. So that's why in my role with the organization that I preside over, which I think you're aware of, uh, my goal is to bring design to the United Nations, design and, and density, design and density to the United Nations. 
Um, not because these are um, unintelligent people, but they mayn't have at any given moment understood the interconnectedness that we're trying to promote. You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Kim Williams. So there's a very interesting Australian link, uh, which um, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure most Australians are aware of, but the uh, one of the funders of the United Nations actually um, had been the Australian Prime Minister, a, a Labour guy called Doc, we call him Doc Evatt, and he had actually helped write the charter. Um, but I, I'm wondering whether coming from a then relatively unurban uh, Australia, it hadn't occurred to them to think in those terms because they, they probably didn't see the explosion of urbanity coming. But I do think what you're talking about is fundamental. And I'm really delighted to talk to somebody who was really involved heavily in, in, in the Quito uh, conference and the whole putting together of Habitat 3, because I think, and the SDGs around, you know, the, which are very influential in, in planning and architectural circles now. And I, I want to come back to that because I think that for me, if you were to put two bits of thinking together, which is the, the, the Paris Accords with the SDGs, those two things strike me as going to be very, very influential going forward in terms of the, the the way cities develop, but also the way that architects and planners will be operating within these two big frameworks of like, if you like, zero carbon, zero poverty, um, which I, I think uh, are, are going to be fundamental. I do want to go back one step. Yeah, you've because uh, you've you've uh, kindly given us a kind of overview, but there's some great specifics along the way. You know, the uh, so your work around 9-11, you got involved in the uh, the memorial at uh, right. I in low Manhattan, and and also you you uh, were part of the preparatory thinking around you know about resilience and disasters. So when Sandy hits and all that kind of stuff, you know, to, to, there's been quite a lot of thinking before then, but a lot of learning from this. And I do think one of the things that comes out of this conversation, Lance, is in a sense the what what might make architecture, architecture and planning in that phrase anti-fragile. You know, is to learn from these experiences of risk. And, th and threat and the way in which we either our systems responded well or didn't respond well, but we learn from both. Um, anyway, can you say a bit more about the memorial era and also, well, uh, you know, your work on risk and resilience in, in New York itself? Sure. Um, the, the memorial era, of course, was, um, it, it was deep, you know, it was a deep, deep time. Um, uh, it was the, t the first time that I saw people uh, come together uh, with disregard for background or age or ethnicity. You know, it was such a communal, you know, eight million or nine, eight to nine million people became family uh, for, uh, for a good long while, right? It, 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 it had legs. Uh, but the exercise uh, um, for what to do with the damaged area, let alone the damaged people, you know, we, we still we still fund people who suffer the consequences of working on the pile and, you know, suffer various cancers or PTSD and so on. Uh, the concern for whether or not um, the city would rebound, which is a, a, a first case. Uh, I, I don't know if I can relate it to climate change because it was episodic. Something happens, uh, you know, and then it's over and then you fix it. It's not a slow burn with a no end in sight. So we are talking about slightly different circumstances. But of course, uh, uh, the city had to take stock of what it would be. And to a large extent, the proposals for what to do on the 9-11 site from leaving it vacant 
to rebuilding what was there, the exact same twin towers, and everything in between with what mix or not mix of uses and the degree to which memorial would take place, um, was so, uh, it was, it was such an exercise in community participation. And at the same time, I have to say, as is often the case with community participation, such a strong indication of the role of the top down in forming uh, the, the corporate, the corporate core of, of our cities. I remember standing um, with the mayor of London, probably during your era, looking out from a terrace of City Hall before the center of London you know, be, became that Japanese science fiction image it is today, and him saying, well, how we can't be a world city, we don't have any tall buildings. And, you know, and it, it was just that simple. He said, there's no tall building, we have to build a lot of tall buildings. I mean, seeding the ground for being able to be competitive with Tokyo, with New York, and then God knows what will ever happen to Paris. Or So, so what was going to happen with, with the city? What was going to happen with transportation? What was going to happen with housing? Everything, one of the great debates about the reconstruction of the 9-11 site, and the LMDC is involved with this, as far as I'm concerned, not with any great credit. Because at the core of that story, there was a little firm globally known called Bayer, Blinder and Bell. And they got to do a study of what would be the, the groundwork study for how to rebuild the site. And only through a later conference I held, a, a post 9-11 conference, did they have a public platform to say, we tried to do a study of all of lower Manhattan and the LMDC said, don't, don't you cross those. If you cross those 16 acres with your ideas, you're not, you're going to lose this job. I mean, it was kind of like when I said before that my, 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 my mind goes to understand the context as well as the product, that was as good a case for at an urban scale as you were going to find. And they were being told, forget the context, just look at the product. Well, nobody wanted to do that. And that became one of the great debates in the city. And it resonated. It resonated because you couldn't prevent the rest of lower Manhattan from responding to whatever would happen there. And of course it has, it's probably had more rebuilding since then with more famous architects of Frank Gehry and it keeps going skyward. So lower Manhattan got a little bit of a boost getting re-competitive with Midtown. Now all of it being competitive with the far West side and the Hudson Yards. I mean, the city is just a boiler maker as, as some of, some of the, the listeners will know. It, it's a, it, it remains a great debate in terms of who is the city for? Is the city for the masters or is it for the populace and who benefits and who gains from any of it? So a lot of the mobility studies that resulted from 9-11 had to do with that um, and resulted in, in, again, for those who visited, on the one hand, the, the beautiful reconstruction of parts of the New York City subway system and a connectedness between the city hall district and the trade center district and the $4 billion um, uh, Oculus by Santiago Calatrava, which will remain a debate forever, uh, depending on whether you love it or you hate it or you understand it or you don't. It's a very complicated instance. 
but there it is. I mean, in a in a in a nutshell, there's and the building. I know it's a bird, but think of it as a nutshell. You've got the debate about Lower Manhattan going on right there. Was fire uh, the 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 finance uh, insurance real estate industries going to maintain its core in Lower Manhattan? Um, or was it going to be dispersed as everyone feared regionally or globally? So you, you raise a very important point about, which I want listeners, you know, it's, it's, it's the debate of the moment and it's the debate for cities always. It, it's the yin and yang between the democratic side, if you like, of city growth and then the kind of uh, more corporate side of, of it, if you like, the kind of uh, the community on the one hand uh, and then also the kind of big forces of growth and development in the market on the on the other and the and the the interplay between the two is always where the interesting bits of, of the city are and sometimes you know in a sense the democracy wins and sometimes it's the top one percent but there's a yin and yang going on always I, I think and I the issue is to try and make sure it doesn't get out of balance uh too much um and and again that's a work in progress and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't I mean I'm struck by the, the governance of New York thing, you know, uh, I, I, I once went to New York with, with, uh, with of all people, Boris Johnson. Uh, the, uh, now that, you know, we went on a visit, he took a bunch of people who are expert in housing. And I went and I always loved New York, but I, I, I used to envy, I thought I envied the governance uh, of New York as a kind of self-governance. And I, boy, it's much more complicated as a place to govern than London itself has become. London has become almost a model of simplicity. You know, we've got a Greater London Council. It's more or less, you know, it's got one other partner, which is central government, but it almost stands supreme. You're talking, about the Boris Johnson. You're talking about the Boris Johnson that was born in New York? Uh, yes, you were very good. Very good. The Boris Johnson, who <laughs> I think you may know, <laughs> gave a speech to Columbia University, and he starts off by saying, we New Yorkers. <laughs> so yes, that very good, that very clever politician. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. By the way, I knew the other, the other London mayor. I think the one you're talking about is Ken Livingston, the one that yes. said we need more toll. Yeah, I, I've got a confession, uh, which I really delighted to make in this in this podcast, which is uh, I, I wrote a chapter in a book recently about the London mayor after 20 years, because London was definitely transformed by the governance revolution of having its own l elected Greater London Mayor. You know, it's been far mm -hmm. more coherently planned uh, than before and it's a better place by far you know but there was a, a, a moment I confessed to Lance which I think you'd like which is the uh, I was advising the government at the time when we were negotiating with the London mayor about the powers we would give them and the complexity the one governance complexity of London you will be aware of is the square mile of the financial centre has its own governance mm -hmm. and has its own area and there was tension between what we should give Ken Livingston as Greater London Mayor and what we should give the you know and make sure that we didn't damage the financial services center so we we gave a, a, a unique power to the financial services center people to determine their own planning up to 150 meters tall that was the deal anything over 150 meters ken livingston would get the plan now <laughs> i look at london day your point about the the japanese technology kind of towers i'm not a great fan of some of that stuff like the vinoli building is not my favorite a favorite building on the London landscape, and I feel almost entirely responsible for the planning because uh, that that was not that was not done by the London Mayor. That was done by the Financial Services Centre. So hey, you know nobody's perfect in this discussion. Look, you know, I want to talk about something. There is and Rafael Vignoli a friend, but if the enough tall buildings were built around that building, it wouldn't. It That's wouldn't, a very good point. Wouldn't, wouldn't matter to me that much. That's um, a very good point. In terms of your point about the yin yang. 
I think there are two, two or three things that have been happening in New York um, that bring that you know to a head for discussion. Um, I would like to balance it with a full-blown discussion about both the Bloomberg and the de Blasio um, mayoral policies on the provision of affordable housing, um, neither of which probably have been as successful as they should have been um, in terms of the parties or their, the, 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 the places they come from. You could expect more from de Blasio, but you might have gotten more from Bloomberg. It's, you know, and we, nobody can ignore the housing crisis, not only in New York, but in the world. Nobody can solve the housing crisis without subsidies. I know it's uh, often debated public-private partnership, but let's face it, uh, you know, my, my many years of perspective say if you, somebody doesn't put up the money, like water, if we all really had to pay for how every drop was produced, we wouldn't be drinking this stuff. Uh, and, and the vaccines even more so. Uh, so Lance, just that point, before we go further, yeah. I want to nail that point. The subsidized housing needs subsidy so that the uh, there is no way of having affordable housing without somebody putting some subsidy in and i look i grew up in public housing so i have a prejudice and it was a very positive experience in in, in my upbringing so i'm very for this and in london as you know you you're one of the points about london that people forget is that it's kind of a kind of an oddly social democratic city in the sense that 40 percent of all new residential development has to have affordable housing in it and it's uh, unavoidable and developers do it yeah but they look pay at, less look, for the land but they do it i i was hoping our conversation might bring us about to one point we have too much i think we'll never get through it but i certainly did go, go for it anyway i didn't want to miss the, the reference to a place like singapore where you know 90 percent of the housing is somehow publicly funded i mean you know yeah. that, and that and and it's and we're not talking about you know um we're not talking about the public housing of new york city in the era of the 50s and 60s where it had to look like public housing you know uh, this stuff doesn't look and even today uh, i i feel you know I, I feel rewarded that some projects i've been involved with especially one that grimshaw was involved with my grimshaw and datner uh, were involved with a project called via verde uh, in the bronx in america which has become you know a benchmark for affordable green beautiful housing so i know it can be done it took an enormous amount of input from the city in terms of property brokering bank relationships yes of course it's complicated but that's what it takes and then you get the good stuff yeah, uh, and I, I wanted you to say something about that but the singapore reference i won't ignore because I'm on record over here in Australia is pointing out that they, if you want to look for a place that assures shelter for everybody, but also um, a, a foot on the housing ownership ladder for everybody, then you look at Singapore yeah. and, you know, it's, it's hardly a it's hardly a beacon of socialism. You know, it's a kind of a successful capitalist economy that just understands that housing can't be done in an entirely free market way in a city. It's not possible. Well, you know, I, I think, and, and um, again, others may, may know considerably more about this than I do, but my recollection is in the discussions with the Singapore founder leader, that he understood that Singapore having had no natural resources, if it was going to have an economic future, had to serve as the threshold between the East and the West. Others might be competitors, but he was. But he said the location is perfect, but you can't be a threshold to the West if, when people arrive, there's shit on the streets, 
gum on your shoes, smell in the air. He said, it's got to be cleaned up, cleaned up. And that's, and they instituted, as we know, the most restrictive, horrible consequences for misbehavior, but they cleaned it up so that you go there and you walk without fear, you walk without filth, you're housed. You, you don't end up looking behind the building that you're staying in two blocks away and see a place where the window shades are ripped and the blinds are falling down and the glass is broken and there's people sitting in the alley. It, it was a full Monty uh, policy towards we're going to create the ideal city you were talking about. In a way, that's what they're aiming for. Yeah. We may, and yes, the politics, the the freedom of uh, expression. There are so many things that are so questionable from a de democratic point of view. But let's say that that's let's say that's a policy debate um, into intermixed with the future of the city. But Singapore is, as we know, a model for many many things. Housing. Yeah, I think also we forget that the this human dignity takes a lot of forms, and one of them is the importance of housing and having a share in society uh, that, that comes from that. And we are struggling on that front. Uh, so in, in Australia, we, we now have, post-pandemic, we now have the most expensive real estate in the world. Um, so that it more, more, more than Hong Kong was, was actually more expensive at one point. I don't think there is now. But Sydney was number two as a city, where it took 13 to 14 times your annual salary to buy any kind of home, right? So, so that the essentially was the social democratic link, if you like, between government and people breaks down at this point in time, in terms of the housing offer. And we've got a, a related problem of a vast increase in the number of people who own two or three homes. But, but on the other hand, surprised that we've got an increasing number of renters when there's actually a link between these, these two. Well, these two you know, I wanted to go back to your yin yang in New York because I have a prime example that I know you'll you'll enjoy having mentioned. Um, where we would go with it, I don't know. Right. But uh, most people who visit New York now, when they get finished with criticizing Hudson Yards, turn to 57th Street and the the, the tall sliver towers, uh, the billionaire yeah. towers, that yeah. are cut, cut across basically 57, 59th Street. Um, I, I look upon, I must say, the first one, another Raphael Bignoli building, thankfully considerably better than his London work. Um, I, I, I have to say, for the record, I kind of fell in love with it. It reminded me of a Saul Lewitt sculpture. I didn't care whether anybody lived in it or not. And I said, you know, if San Gimignano can get away with it, so can we. Um, but all, all of it implied in terms of what, what your resources had to be, or even who you were or where you were from. Who were these people who could have these places? And was it just a bank or was it really a residence and so on and so forth? So uh, there are people who, who you know, take the stance that anything that in the city is done that celebrates that degree of inequity and wealth is a bad thing. Whereas I sometimes like to point out not sufficiently enough that the biggest money in the city, even though some of them get away with 18, you know, even though you know, Bezos may not pay any taxes in New York City, most of the taxes come from the wealthy. And if all that wealth exited the city, no, the schools would not be funded. The parks would not be funded. I don't want to say. I don't want to say. For that matter, you accept it. I, I find that our tax policy towards the wealth 
in New York City and moreover in the United States is ridiculous. I mean, my God, the amount of wealth that's accrued. Yes, I understand the concerns that they have. Are you made it? How do you use it? The redistribution trickle down doesn't work. Taxation is a new device. It's not 100 years old. We can do better. And nobody, no, I don't think there's anybody, George Soros or Bill Gates, none of these guys, they all know we can do better. So, but on the other hand, uh, well, you know, it's kind of like, again, you know, it's kind of like uh, uh, everybody in Germany should have gotten a Volkswagen, but, you know, but maybe everybody should get a Porsche. Um, you know, it's okay. Good things are yeah, good. I'm, I'm, look, I'm very, as we draw to a conclusion, and I, I want to take off from where you just ended there. I think that we violently agree, you, you and I, and I think most people would really, around, it's the balance in the city, uh, and it's being very uh, ingenious as to where the resources come from, and that you, we need a, a better balance, but you, you, you mustn't kill the golden goose. And I think this, this, this way in which we allow um, wealth to do its best uh, for the for the city, I think, uh, is, strikes me as the way forward. And that's one of the reasons why I think being ingenious around um, the subsidies that go into uh, affordable housing is one of the best ways to express the way in which, if you like, um, various constituent elements of the city can coexist. I think it's a it's a symbol, but it's also a very important material fact because diverse and mixed cities are really good. Uh, good cities. But, but, uh, one of the things this, that London, this remains yeah. an enormously large question. Again, I, I, I'm mentioning things that I, I have a feeling you know about and possibly Northern I. But you know, within the within the the halls of the United Nations, it's it's not uncommon to run into conversations and debates about the GNP being the measure by which we assess how the world is doing that it's done on this uh, um, global economic scale that may or may not include um, the most disadvantaged, frail, or uh, otherwise not included uh, in, in the equity formula. And so I, I'm, I'm always, I always remain aware of that. It's a great concern of mine. Um, I, I don't in my practice normally, uh, I don't think I have ever been involved in the luxury end of the business um, by predilection, I prefer. So it's always been dealing with things like the Via Verde. It's always been the housing question. It's always been um, the, 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 you know, the, the, the Athens Charter, the CM for the future. What, 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 what is the big plan going forward? Um, which is where I felt the SDGs from the United Nations came into play. Um, uh, as you know, the organization I preside over, we, we are committed to the SDGs and especially SDG 11 because it talks to, to the broader issues. I actually have, for people who've never seen this SDG business that we mentioned a couple of times, and I'm not gonna go into it, it's another program, but I think it's not bad to be aware of the fact that the United Nations has uh, come up with 17 categories, 11 being the urban category, that they think represent the challenges of our time from health, water, air, education, gender equity. One can go online, UN, SDGs, and plumb these 17 and learn an enormous amount about how your, your own behavior 
can put you as a participant in the future that you and I are discussing, Tim, that it's it's not them and us, it's all of us. And, and so I, I always feel it's good to share that information. That's a very good point on which to end. I've got, I've got, I'm going to say one thing about you, and then I'm going to ask you, but I wanted to, I'm planting the last question. The last question is, given where we're at now, and given your own career, which has been very distinguished, both as a thinker, but also as a doer, as somebody who has played a role as a civic actor, as well as a, a, an architect, and has been concerned about a diversity of populations in, in, in the city. I'm going to ask you, the, what do you think, is there a, what's the responsibility of architects and, and urbanists from this point on? Is there a responsibility? And my, 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 my point is just to say thank you very much for what has been a fascinating conversation, ending in the right place, it seems to me, which is around what are the values that drive our the next generation of thinking about the city and, and being informed by the SDGs and I guess the Paris Accords together, those things give us a really good steer, it seems to me, about the kinds of values that should inform the next city. But uh, I'd like you to end by saying something about what do you think the, the responsibility of the architect or the urbanist is from this point on? It, you know, it's a complicated issue, which I think you're aware of. Where, when, when, people, when studies are done about income and respectability, this is a little bit uh, anecdotal, you know, the three uh, licensed professions, doctors, lawyers, and architects, uh, the, the lawyers make the most, uh, the doctors make the next, uh, the architects make the least. The architects are the most respected, the doctors in the middle are lawyers. Uh, how to interpret that? Architects represent, I think, extraordinarily high moral and ethical fiber. I think it's embedded in the educational system. I think it's embedded in the studio process that requires that you work collaboratively, cooperatively with team, and you get a sense of the horizontality of the world. But when you go into the world to practice your profession, um, the, the split between uh, the clientele, the public client versus the private client, they, they put you often at odds. You know, so so you're working for people, the people who have the money we just referred to and control that money, who hire you, ask you to do things that may be in conflict. I mean, the biggest instance we can say today is uh, hopefully everyone is aware that good architecture these days responds very, very nicely to all the issues of uh as you say, sustainability and resilience and recycling and circular economy and everything you can do. And all of that is very good. And then there's the arguments. The client says, no, nah, that costs me more money. I don't want to do that. It costs me more money. The architect says, no, it doesn't cost you more money. It costs you less money in the long run. It costs you more money in the short run, possibly. This is the Al Gore. Al Gore, his inconvenient truth, starts off with, as we know, all of the high-minded issues. This last time I heard him, we actually had to, I had the pleasure of sharing a stage. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to listen to the inconvenient truth. I've heard it. He said, I'm not going to talk about the inconvenient truth today. I'm going to talk about the quarterly report. He said, short-term returns on investment are going to ruin the possibilities we have of making things work. Well, so the architect, I think, is actually confronted with the quarterly return mentality of the world and the uh, profound good ethical and moral intentions that, that they are educated to pursue. And th there is a quandary. So look on that note, I think the quandary in helping us sort out the quandary, your contribution in the last hour has been phenomenal. So uh, I hope that um, <clears throat> every, I'm sure the listeners will have enjoyed that and learned a lot from it. I certainly did. Lance J. Brown, thank you very much indeed for that.
You've been listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in this series from your favourite podcast provider.